You're listening to the teaching ministry of Discovery Church in Bristol, Tennessee. For more information about Discovery, or for more free audio content, please visit discoverybristol.com. Uh, if you're following with us, we're in Mark, and we've made it to chapter 10, uh, chapter 9. And so open your Bibles to that, open your journals, it'll be up on the screen. And we come across this silly debate. The, uh, just recently, Jesus has been on a mountaintop, meeting with Elijah and Moses. He's, he's been transfigured. He's bright, uh, the brightest thing you can see. He is the Son of God. God has spoken and talked about him. He is the center of, of this whole ministry. He's doing healings, and he just healed a little boy that was demon-possessed when they come down. And what are the disciples talking about? They're not talking about the Son of God there with them. They're not talking about, uh, about this amazing miracle he just did, or they're not talking about what just transpired up on the mountaintop. They're in a debate on who's the greatest disciple, right? Of all the things, you got, you got God here with them, and they're debating who's the greatest disciple. They're focused on themselves, and so they're in the midst of this silly debate. And so we, we pick up on the story in Mark chapter 9, verse 33. Says they came to Capernaum, and when he when he was in the house, he asked them, "What were you arguing about on the road?" But they kept quiet because they had argued about who was the greatest. Prior to this incident, God Jesus did all these things, and they're more concerned about themselves. They're wondering who's the greatest because they want to know who's going to be the second in command. They still have this idea that the Messiah is going to overthrow Rome, is going to be the new ruler and the new king, and they want to be the vice king, the, the second in command. And so there's this debate. I, I don't know. I wonder if even part of the debate comes that, that Jesus took the three up on the mountaintop and the nine stayed below. And I wonder if the three came down and, and kind of egged the others on, you know, we got to go with Jesus up on the mountaintop. Because Jesus had told them not to share what happened. And so they said, we could tell you, but we'd have to kill you. And so they're like, Jesus wants us to know. And, and maybe there's this egging each other on. Maybe, maybe this just a, a normal debate of, you know, I think Jesus likes me the most. I, no, no, I think I'm Jesus' favorite. You guys, if you have more than one kid, you know what that's like. You've heard the kids say, who's dad's favorite? And I just tell them their mom. And mom's my favorite. And so that just kind of puts an end to the debate. But they have this debate. Who's the greatest? And so none of them are willing to answer because they know it was a foolish, a foolish argument. And, and they're quiet, and it's this argument that they have among who's the greatest. But in our text, it seems ridiculous. But it's also something we, we sometimes do, right? That sometimes at work, we, we compare, why did he get the promotion? Why does she get the better office? I work harder than they do. Why, why do they keep getting all the breaks? Or perhaps even in our spiritual walk. We know that we have a, a sin. We, we have something wrong. But we say, well, at least I'm not as bad as that guy. At least I'm not doing what she does. At least I'm not a liar like he is at, at the office. I, I don't sleep around like them. And so we have this comparison kind of saying, who's the greatest? We're trying to see who's the greatest in God's eyes when, when we fail to realize we're all sinners and God loves us all. And so Jesus brings them around and, and it says sitting down. And that's significant. They're already in this home. They're already in, in a private setting. He, but when he sits down, when a rabbi would sit, the, the disciples, the followers of the rabbi would sit around him. And that was significant. That was a, a set teaching time. So Jesus is making a point. This is not just him talking. This is not going about their business and making just him sharing off the top of his head. 
He's making a point to sit down with them and tell them it doesn't matter who's the greatest. It matters who's the least. Sitting down, Jesus called the 12 and said, anyone who wants to be first must be the very last and the servant of all. Flips everything up on its head. Right? This isn't a new concept for us. We, we've all heard this before, right? We're supposed to be servants, and, and be, to, be, uh, to be a good Christian, you, you put others first. But I'm sure the disciples have been seeing that. The disciples have seen Jesus do things for others. You've seen Jesus, even though he was hungry, even though he was tired, still bless others. He'd still take time to, to care for others, to teach them, and to heal them. They've seen him be a servant, but they're not getting it. We know this idea. We've heard this before. But are we getting it? This is so countercultural to, to what, we, what they knew and what we know. Everything we have is we got to do something of value. We got to be significant. Think about what we teach our kids. You can, you can do this. Be the best. Go get a goal. We never say, just take care of the others on the team. We never say, it doesn't matter what you do, it just care for everybody else. It's not in our, in our vernacular, that's not how we speak, and, and this is what Jesus is saying, care for others, be a servant, love others. And it says, and he took a little child whom he pla- who he placed among them. Taking the child in his arms, he said to them, whoever welcomes one of these little children in my name welcomes me. And whoever welcomes me does not welcome me, but the one who sent me. Grabs a little child. Children at this time uh, were highly insignificant. The mortality rate was, was high, and so they didn't attach themselves to kids like we do today. They, often not until they were five were they even seen of any value. And so he grabs a little child. What people would say was completely insignificant, had no value, was the one level lower than a slave, and he grabs a child, and he says, are you treating this child? How do you treat this child? If you, treat, if you welcome this child, if you care for this person, it's like you're caring for not only me, but the one who sent me, God. He turns this whole thing up on his head. The, the disciples who have seen this child and been annoyed by him, and Jesus pulls the child and says, Are you caring with a servant's heart? Are you loving? This Mark continues the the passage with another story, but it connects in in a very significant way. It says, Teacher, said John, we saw someone driving out demons in your name, and we told him to stop because he was not one of us. (laughs) Again, John's got this idea of of pride sneaking in. We told him to stop because he's not one of your, your, your inner circle. He's not one of the 12 of us. He's not in our little club. He can't be doing that. He can't, he can't cast out demons in your name because he's not one of us, Jesus. There's still this idea that they're on this higher level and they're competing. John doesn't get it. Pride has creeped in and taken over. Do not stop him, Jesus said, for no one who does a miracle in my name can in the next moment say anything bad about me. For whoever is not against us is for us. Truly I tell you, Anyone who gives you a cup of water in my name because you belong to the Messiah will certainly not lose the reward. What a great message about building walls between believers. Uh, we do this so often when, when you say, hey, you should come to, come to my church. We had a debate on ketchup and salsa. 
Not since I'm sure anyone will say this this week. But sometimes you get to work and you're like, hey, come to my church. No, they're going to another church. Oh, my, my church is better. You should hear our worship team. You should see our children's ministry. Like it's this contest among believers. It gets even worse when it's among denominations. This denomination has it right. This denomination has it right. Instead of realizing they're all focused on the kingdom of God. It's the kingdom of God is what's most important. It doesn't matter if someone goes to Discovery Church or Second Christian Church or the church down the road or anywhere what matters is that they're going to, to a church to worship God. We get this contest. When the radio uh, program came the, for the movie, the ra- one of the radio hosts was telling me, he said, you know, it's so great to have a church that was willing to partner with us because many churches see us as their competition. And that just blew me away. I don't know how they can be our competition if we're all working for the same goal. There is no competition. And so he's saying among believers, if it's in my name, let us lift it up. Let's encourage other people for whatever church they're going to. Let's even encourage other denominations and a radio station. If it's focused on God's kingdom, that's what's the most important. So Jesus shares that and then he continues. He says, if anyone causes one of these little ones, those who believe in me, to stumble... It would be better for them if a large millstone were hung around their neck and they were thrown into the sea. Jesus has that little child there and he says this and, and, and kind of a graphic image for that little kid to hear, right? But, uh, but I don't think he's talking about children. He's talking about those young in faith. Anyone that causes someone that's young in their faith to stumble... Anyone that draws someone away from God, draws someone away from Christ, it's better for a millstone to be hung around their neck. A millstone was a giant stone that they would use to grind out the flour that an ox had to push because it was so heavy. Jesus is saying it'd be better to have that tied around your neck and thrown in a lake than to sin. And that's where we get into here. Jesus is talking about the severity of sin. Something we take a little too lightly. So, be prepared if, if this next section might offend you. It's not me that's offending you. It might be the Holy Spirit tugging on your heart to open up and realize that we have a glaring hole in our view of sin and our view of hell. Jesus says, if your hand causes you to stumble, cut it off. It's better for you to enter, to enter life maimed with two hands or then with two hands to go into hell where the fire never goes out. And if your foot causes you to stumble, cut it off. It's better for you to enter life crippled than to have two feet and be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to stumble, pluck it out. It's better that you enter in the kingdom of God with one eye than to have two eyes and be thrown into hell. The Jews believed highly in the the value of a body. They they frowned greatly on disfiguring your body. And so this teaching would have been gigantic to them. To think of maiming your body, to think of disfiguring your body would have been just crazy. And so that's what Jesus is saying here. It's not saying literally that we should cut off our hand if it causes us to sin. And this is hyperbole, but he's saying that it's that important for us not to sin. We take sin so lightly. There's sins that we know we're doing in our daily life. And, and maybe we come here and at communion time we confess and, and we say, sorry, God. And, 
<clears throat> and then we go about doing the same sin later that day, later that week. And Jesus is saying it's better to have one eye and make it to heaven than to have two eyes and sin. <clears throat> because sin is leading us to hell. It's a pretty big statement. Something that we take so lightly. We don't talk about hell very often. It's not a comfortable thing. If you listen to people, they'll often talk about heaven and this goal. And then when we talk about the alternative, it's the other place. But not Jesus. In fact, Jesus talks about hell more than he does about heaven in the Gospels. Jesus is very clear because he doesn't want us to go there. He wants us to understand what the hell of a destination would be like. In Revelation, it talks that it's similar to, to a lake of fire. But that's because John didn't have enough words to describe how horrible it is. A lake of fire isn't even as bad as hell could be. Sometimes people say, well, hell is just the, the lack of God's presence. As if that's not bad. First, that'd be horrible. Second, it's not the lack of God's presence. Because the Bible tells us the wrath of God is on those that are in hell. Jesus is saying, cut off your hand then to go to hell. That's how bad hell is. He's saying that you'd rather remove your body part, do anything it takes to not be caught up in sin. It's not our hands or our feet or our eyes that cause us to sin. It's our minds. Are we doing whatever it takes to have a mind focused on God? To avoid sins. We know those sins that are constantly present in our life. Are we that appalled, that shocked by them, that hurt by them? that we would cut off our hand because of it. Sin is a huge thing. Sending people to hell. And we don't take that seriously enough. But God does. God takes hell so serious that he sent his only son to die in our place so we wouldn't go there. Think about that. Just think for a moment the significance of how horrible hell is. That Jesus would talk about it more than he talks about heaven. That is that important for him to let people know that destination. And God sent his son to keep us from going there. I can't imagine sacrificing any of my children. I can't imagine putting any of my kids in harm's way in any manner. And God was willing to do that just so we could avoid our eternal destination that we are headed for of hell. If we would believe in him, if we would give our lives to him, if we would believe in him and believe that he was the Messiah and that he died and rose again, that he conquered death. Jesus conquered hell. And if we believe that, we would be eternally saved and go to heaven. Because just as Jesus talks about uh, hell, there's wonderful verses about heaven. Heaven is an amazing place, a place of no mores, right? Uh, where he'll wipe away every tear from our eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of these things has passed away. Jesus continues on in, in Mark chapter 9. 
with this quote from the Old Testament book of Isaiah chapter 66. It says, where the worms that eat them do not die and the fire is not quenched, everyone will be salted with fire. Salt is good, but it loses its saltiness. How can you make it salty again? Have salt among yourselves and be at peace with one another. He shares this passage from Isaiah, and, and if you're reading through in your Bible or in your journal, you might have noticed that your, your Bible might be missing verse 44 or verse 46. Different manuscripts have that passage from Isaiah in different locations in Mark, different of the ancient manuscripts. All of them have that passage, but they don't know where it goes, if it should go in between where 44 would be, where 46 would be, or 48. And so if you're wondering, why, why is my Bible missing two verses? It's not missing. It's there. It's just in a different location. But Jesus is quoting this verse from Isaiah to remind them again about the reality of hell. During the reign of King Ahaz, back in the Old Testament, there is a time where Israel was following pagan, pagan beliefs. And they were worshiping pagan gods, and, and they were worshiping the pagan deity Moloch. And one of the worst things that I can imagine is in this, in this way to sacrifice to Moloch, they would have child sacrifices. And they would go and they would perform these child sacrifices in a ravine just outside Jerusalem. And this ravine was called Gehenna. And they would go and perform these sacrifices and, and rituals to this pagan god. Well, when King Joash came along, he put an end to this. This is the time of the prophet Jeremiah, the book of Jeremiah. He put an end to this, this atrocity. And he ended up not only putting an end to it, instead of allowing this altar to still be there, he filled that ravine with trash. And so the, all the trash from Jerusalem went to this ravine, and, and any dead animals would go to this ravine, and any criminals that died, they would put in this ravine. And then they would light it on fire, and it was a fire that continually burned Nonstop. This is the way that they had as a, as a trash dump to get rid of their trash. And so this fire continually burned day and night. And when people would have trash, they would take it out and throw it in the ravine of Gehenna. This is what Jesus is referencing when he talks about hell. He's referring to this. This is what Isaiah is talking about, is this ravine at the time of Isaiah. And Jesus is referencing that hell is like this horrible trash dump full of carcasses that is continuously burning day and night. This is how bad hell is. And he gives this reality that everyone knows about the ravine. And he says the worms that eat them do not die because in hell it's continual and the fire is not quenched. So he gives us these clear teachings about hell. And then he gives us, the Bible gives us clear teachings about heaven. Like I said, it's the place of, of no more. It's a place of, of beautiful stones and jewelry. It's a place where gar the Garden of Eden is restored. The river of, of life, the river of life flows and the tree of life is available again. And heaven most importantly, we're in the presence of God. We're worshiping. If you read Revelation, you see some amazing things about, about the angels and about the, the elders singing praises to God over and over and over and over and over and over and over again because they're so overwhelmed with the joy of being in God's presence. This is a picture of heaven far different than the picture of hell. 1 Corinthians 2, 9, talking about heaven, says what, what no eye has seen, no ear has heard, and what no human mind has conceived, the things God has prepared for those who love him. 
imagine that. We can't even come up with the greatest idea of what heaven would be like. It's that great. There's a restaurant that, that I, you know, I go to often, and, and whenever I use the restroom, every time there's a track right there on the urinal. I don't know why someone thinks it's important to put a track on the urinal, but it seems like an odd location because I'm never going to read that, right? Uh, you can, I mean, there could be a book that says most important thing in life, and I would not touch it because it's on top of the urinal. But on, uh, often on this track, on the cover, it says, where are you going when you die? I assume it's a track. I've never opened it to see the answer, but it's a great question. Where are you going when you die? I, I, normally at Discovery, we don't have this hellfire and brimstone preaching where we focus as much on hell, but what we do focus on is the scripture. And this is where the scripture, where the book of Mark has taken us today. This is where Jesus took the disciples as they sat down, as he taught them, as he pulls the little child that's living in that home to them. He's talking this very question. Where are you going to go when you die? Hell is real. Heaven is real. If you had to answer that question, what's your answer? I hope for many of you, there's confidence that you're going to heaven. But for some of you, this question might be kind of shaky. You might not have a clear answer. And if that's the case, I want to encourage you. Come and talk to us. Come talk in the prayer room. Come see me in, in the back after service. Uh, come talk to any, any leader of the church. We'd love to talk to you. Because Jesus doesn't want us to go to hell. God doesn't want us to go to hell. That's why he sent his son to die in our place. And if you can confidently give an answer to that to know that it's you're going to heaven then are you living that way the disciples they've been with Jesus the disciples are go headed to heaven other than Judas the disciples are believers that he died and rose again eventually they, they believe that they're headed to heaven and yet he still is teaching them how to behave to be a servant to put others first. Are we doing that in our work? Are we doing that in our home? Are we too caught up in comparing? Maybe comparing at home. I, I, I made dinner and did dishes. The least she could do is take out the trash. I work so hard, how come I have to put that on the kids? Are we comparing or are we a servant at home? At work, you might feel like you're doing all the, the hardest parts and the biggest projects. Are you willing to help out with other people? Are we living as servants? Are we living as the least of these, putting others first? Our passage this morning, as we worked through, we actually ended last week at verse 29. And, and so we started this morning at verse 33. So there's a few verses in there that we wanted to hit now. As we go to this time of communion, Jesus, it says, verse 30, they left that place and passed through Galilee. Jesus did not want anyone to know where they, where they were because he was teaching his disciples. He said to them, the son of man is going to be delivered into the hands of men. They will kill him, and after three days he will rise. But they did not understand what he meant and were afraid to ask him about it. I love that passage because it says the son of man will be delivered. He was delivered by God into the hands of men that 
nailed him to a cross and he died, but we can celebrate that he rose, that Jesus knew he would rise. And because of that, if we have faith in him, we have, the, we have certainty in heaven ahead and not hell. And so this morning, as we go this time of communion, I just want to encourage you to, to take a moment to, to stop and think about that. Jesus knew what was going to happen. He knew the agony he was about to go through, and he did that still for you and I. And just appreciate that we have hell as our destination, and God loves us enough that he sent his only son. Let that sink in as we take communion. If you'll pray with me, and then you can go and grab communion. God, we thank you for your love for us, and thank you that you sent your son. God, we thank you that, that you gave us an alternative from hell. And that alternative came in the costly way through the death of your son. But God, we thank you for sending him for us. God, we pray this morning as we take communion that we would just be able to reflect on the greatness of that, of that gift of eternal life, that we'd be able to reflect on destiny with you and reflect on what it looks like to live like that now. And Lord, if there are people here that are not certain of that question, where will they go when they die? God, I just pray that you, you prompt them in their heart to come and talk to one of us. God, we lift this up in your name. Amen.